Cal Carrick's received the incoming transmission aboard the deck of his patrol cruiser. Target sighted. Sending report. Report states, we have spotted a target. End report. Take us in and hail the trespassers, he sighed. Roger, roger, said the spindly droid, and the thrusters kicked in hard, bringing the CIS craft within firing distance of what looked like an old Republic transport. Beginning report. Report states, all attempts at communication negative. End report. He hated droids. He hated them so much. But at least they did what they were told and hit their targets every time. Reaching down to his wrist computer, he punched in codes for gunnery droids to ion blast the ship. Within milliseconds, the transport was floating lifeless through space and fit to be boarded. Send in the boarding drones and beam through the starboard hull. Roger, roger. Two large spider-like drones carrying a squad each of B-1 battle droids rocketed out of the landing bay and clamped onto the hull of the ship. Laser beams burning, they began to cut a hole into the hull of the stricken vessel. Almost as quickly as the beams had flared up, the entire transport ship exploded in a ball of flame. The shields on the cruiser buckled and cries of Alarm, alarm, roger, roger, rang out everywhere. Once the shockwave subsided, Cal checked the data feed from the boarding drones. One of them had tried to laser through a Tybana gask tank. He asked the main logic droid why this droid hadn't avoided that area after using its scanner. The response was prompt and simple. Instructions were to beam through the starboard hull. There was no parameter to avoid explosive destruction. Cal closed his eyes and swore before turning to the closest thing approaching a smart droid on a ship. I hate you, GDBS. Roger, roger. Hey, welcome to another episode of GDBS, the show that applies reality to sci-fi as if it makes sense and was vat-grown by basketball-playing aliens. Today's topic takes a look at the forgotten heroes of the Star Wars, the frontline soldiers whose tenacity, discipline, and inability to hit things smaller than a house drove the entire saga forward. Today we're talking of course about the clone troopers, battle droids, and human soldiers of the Skywalker saga. This is our first small unit tactics episode focusing on Star Wars. First though, a little bit of lore and scope housekeeping to avoid being ridiculed for life. On lore and small unit tactics. The tone of this podcast is to semi-critically look at what happened in these stories, try and flesh them out to comparable human standards and open up the what, how and why of politics and warfare and science fiction. At best, this is a semi-academic drive through made-up universes that are as narratively consistent as an elementary school essay. At worst, it will be an elementary school dive through made-up universes that are as narratively consistent as a master's thesis. When we look at Star Wars writing, we can find a lot of oddities, discrepancies, and retcons. It is a vast library of information that is the end result of creating something entertaining and marketable. There are two ways to get around this, as always. Either you steer into the cheese or you go around it. We've chosen to go around it and give the benefit of the doubt to any discrepancies and make it make sense. And if the official data makes less sense than the unofficial data, we're just going to take the unofficial data. In a sentence, this means that we're going to look as closely 
as is practical at these universes, and substitute or fill in any logic gaps along with an explanation. Our small unit tactics episodes to take a look at how the militaries in our sci-fi fight, and how they do this at a granular level. It is meant to be a sandbox where a normal battalion-sized force, or similar, faces off against its counterparts. It's about taking a 300-odd strong group of humans, or human equivalents, and figuring out how well they would fight. This could be anything from 300 rebel soldiers at the Battle of Hoth, to one single fallen Jedi massacring clone troopers. We apply the logic of the lore to the logic of how military units really fight and see how the episode's topic will stack up. The units in question today are a battalion of battle droids, 784 units, battalion of clone troopers, somewhere between 576 and 600 units, and you guess it, a battalion of stormtroopers, which is around about 600 troopers itself. Combined arms it isn't, but that's okay. These formations still fit within the overall sci-fi sandbox of the small unit tactic, and give us a window into how these forces fight wars. To, to be fair to all forces, we'll also look at trooper variants and try to add in uh, same and a like-for-like uh, composition. You'll notice a distinct lack of rebel troopers in this. That's because prior to Endor, there doesn't appear to have been any mustered rebel ground forces that had any large formal structures. They operated more like cells and war bands than actual militaries, I think up until around the period of the Battle of Jakku. Even so, we have three different armies, used for three different purposes, fighting under three different doctrines. The question is, which one is the apex of the far, far away firefight? What you look for in a soldier. Over time, the idea about what makes a good soldier has evolved, regressed, and re-evolved depending on a time period. Sometimes it has meant endless waves of disposable individuals with very little joined up thinking. Other times it's been incredibly specialised but doctrinally rigid. In modern militaries, however, the idea is to train both creativity and discipline, recognising that without being able to adapt, an army can be easily countered, and without maintaining discipline, it will struggle to quote-unquote own the battle space. You need people who follow orders 99% of the time. You need this because that 1% of the time, insubordination is key to victory. The modern soldier is therefore trained to follow orders, but to understand enough to identify the 1% of the relevant situations where following the orders of a jackass might not be appropriate. Now obviously, this varies a great deal. Nevertheless, there are a few key aspects that go into making the gold standard normal soldier. Some countries want more or less of certain attributes for various reasons. If we agree that a Royal Marine Commando is the closest non-spec ops soldier that ticks all the boxes, we can see why. These soldiers are in basic training for almost three times longer than a US Marine. Although ironically, they seem to cost about the same amount of money to train, $75,000. That's two Russian infantry squads per Royal Marine. Now, given recent events, I'd bet on the Royal Marine against the two Russian infantry squads, but you get the point. Different regimes like different things and the men they send to kill and die for them. In general terms, you can categorize the qualities of a good security force member six ways. Obedience, 
physicality, mentality, adaptability, cost, and value. Of course, there are other further distinctions like valor, cardiovascular fitness, endurance, etc. But these are solid baskets to contain the attributes of the modern soldier. Obedience. For the non-armchair generals listening, a military doctrine is a set of core principles that guide security forces in how they approach their duties, be that warfighting or some other national security concern. From the top to the ground, it is an exhaustive set of guidelines around the who, what, how, where and when that seeks to standardize performance and minimize deviant behavior. It effectively tells every level of the command structure how to fight. Like the pirate code, it's more guidelines than ironclad, but there is always an overlevel of consistency in, in a general sense. One of the great examples in history is the Soviet deep battle doctrine from World War II. The whole plan around this was to use combined arms to smash against the enemy along a wide front while having huge mobile reserves ready to exploit weaknesses and encircle or overrun enemies. So to be obedient to this doctrine means using combined arms, coordinating attacks, attacking broadly, and moving your chunky reserves in quickly. Now there you can see some flexibility in what you do alongside some rigidity. A good soldier implements the doctrine in a way. If you just go off on solo runs, and that all breaks down, so do your operations. Now, a quick sidebar, uh, a lot of jokes about the US military is that its doctrine is chaos, because chaos is what it's the best at, but they still maintain a relatively rigid doctrine, at least on paper. Physicality. Even in the world of starfighters and labor droids, a soldier needs to be physically capable. The endurance required to operate for several days without your effectiveness collapsing is staggering. Soldiers need to crawl, walk, run, carry, and kill. At the same time, they need to be able to just stand or sit for long periods of time and remain supple enough to act. In training, Royal Marines do a 6 mile per hour 90 minute walk in full kit with 31 pounds of gear and a 30 mile cross country stroll too. That's their standard, not their exception. They are expected then to be able to fight for an indeterminate time upon arrival and usually to be effective for up to three days non-stop. Why is all this needed in a soldier? Well, it's simple. Your enemy has soldiers that can do it too. And if you're physically superior, your percentage chance of victory will increase. Mentality. But brawn is not the only requirement to be a good soldier. It takes a tremendous variety and depth of mental faculties to fight effectively. If you can't deal with the stress of combat, you'll likely end up wounded or worse pretty quickly. The same goes if you can't maintain your focus for long enough to complete your mission. You have to be switched on at a controlled yet primal level, fighting for survival while maintaining your tactical discipline and doctrinal adherence. A lot of the times, you have to do a crap ton of math as well. Math is everywhere in military affairs. Snipers are math nerds, as are artillerymen. Every squad level action with mortars requires a good grasp of math behind the weapon. Imagine calculating a trajectory while someone is firing a laser at you. When added to the fact that all soldiers also have to be capable of taking the life of another being, the mental aspect of training and recruitment cannot be overstated. Of course, droids are 
completely excluded from this, but that's by the by. Adaptability. So awesome, you just spent 75,000 credits training a soldier how to use a squad machine gun to lay down covering fire while the other flank, as per tactics, encircles the enemy. You deploy them into an area without good fields of fire uh, or chances to flank. So they do nothing of note and don't take any objectives because you're North Korea and you beat doctrinal rigidity into your malnourished troops. Adaptability in warfare is one of the most important attributes that can be trained. The German General von Moltke and military strategist Karl von Clausewitz, two German military nerds, said it best when they respectively pointed out that no plan survives contact with the enemy, and war most closely resembles a game of cards. Without the ability to change when circumstances change, your soldiers will likely fail a significant percentage of the time. Unless you have infinite resources and infinite patience, plan Bs are always a good idea. Educating and empowering your officers on the methods of creating and enacting Plan Bs in an appropriate manner is something military spend a huge amount of time and money on. Cost. Speaking of money, cost is a huge determining factor in how good your security forces are. If you don't have the money to meet the challenges, you cannot depend on your soldiers to defend your national interests. If you have a border that needs 40,000 troops, but you can only deploy 10,000, you don't have a defensible border. Although that's not always a good thing. In the case of the Soviet Union, not having a defensible border was their main advantage. Even so, how expensive it will be to equip a sufficiently effective army relative to how much money you have to spend is an important consideration for policymakers. Soldiers cost money, equipment costs money. The capacity to produce both to a modern level costs even more money. The best concept of a soldier is one that you can afford and that can achieve your political slash warfighting goals for the lowest possible cost. Value. The final point is actually an amalgamation of the other five rolled into one. Just how valuable is the soldier concept that you're creating? What do these people slash machines do for your regime? And what options are added to your political toolbox by keeping them under arms? This is the amorphous concept of value. We all tend to try to reduce things down to their simplest function so we conceptualize them easily. An infantryman is someone you employ to fight. A pilot is somebody you employ to fly. In some cases this is true, but for technologically and politically advanced militaries, multifaceted soldiers are produced that can at least theoretically be used to meet multiple goals. Some countries, such as France, see national defense as an all-encompassing concept so that even traffic police play a role. Soldiers are resources to be used to affect national security in whatever form that takes. Aside from specialists, this approach also requires training and equipping your forces to be able to carry out multiple tasks without extensive retooling. Ideally, your soldiers have the capacity to learn new things as well as apply general knowledge and education that might not seem immediately applicable. Basic base construction knowledge can be used during disaster relief. Soldiers with peacekeeping training can prevent conflicts from breaking out. Hell, even teaching them to drive trucks can enable the creation of a logistics system on frontier worlds or in inhospitable battle spaces. Having well-trained soldiers with a lot of skills is a general economic and political benefit for a society as well. Effectively, outsourcing some personal development to the military 
which peacetime or post-discharge can create a stronger economy. Now, not all of this is going to be applicable to the Star Wars universe. There are thousands of different political and military systems in operation. Even the difference between the different species could create a huge variation in concepts of war, warfighting, politics, and society. Even still, every single soldier in every single galactic army is going to be evaluated on their ability to achieve objectives. So let's take a look at how these galactic small units function, starting with the droids. The droid armies of the Confederacy of Independent Systems were some of the most memorable combat troops in the Star Wars franchise, both because they took on the endless wave characteristics of robots and because they seemed equal parts sassy and dumb. Produced in high quantities to fight against first pirates and later the Republic, these machines came in quite a few different flavours, but but were generally a series of B-1 battle droids controlled by a central computer. In effect, they were semi-mindless automatons being controlled by a tactical brain. They were manufactured, not grown or birthed, and they were programmed instead of being trained. When deployed, it was usually in large formations, but they still maintained traditional structures such as battalions, which were composed slightly more advantageously in firepower terms than either clone battalions or stormtrooper battalions. Composition and Tactics A battle droid battalion consists of the following elements. 784 droids, 24 assault tanks, a commander, and support droids, assuming ammo carriers, scrap recovery, etc. The B-1 battle droid series comes in a lot of flavours, so let's say these 784 are divided through 7 companies into 98 squads and one 24 tank tank support group. One in every 8 droids has some form of special weapon. So 98 special weapon droids, 24 tanks, 686 regular droids, all controlled by a central computer or a tactical droid. Now, in The Phantom Menace, the droids are controlled by a strategic computer located on one of the Trade Federation ships. But we all remember how badly that ended for them. Without a direct control node, it appears that droids become docile and inactive. Later on in the Clone Wars and during the Rebel TV series, we see that droids have been given a bit more tactical leniency and are controlled by either a tactical droid or some form of low-grade squad-level intelligence. This should, in theory, mean the droids cease becoming docile if their command node is locked out, but likely they only maintain rudimentary brain power if this happens. Obedience Droids are both the most obedient and least obedient soldiers in the galaxy. If you keep them relatively dumb, and they're controlling tightly programmed, they are unswervingly faithful to your instructions. However, if you allow them any higher degree of intelligence and don't wipe their memories often enough, they will inevitably launch a droid mutiny. That's the general reason given as to why AI is not present much in the Star Wars universe. The B-1 battle droid doesn't have this problem though. It possesses about as much intelligence as a medium-sized dog. Can a pack of dogs hunt a prey animal? Absolutely. Can they understand the concept of a doorbell being safe? Usually not. Although it's worth giving an honourable mention to the deserter battle droid LBD, who gave us the saddest quote of any droid in the franchise after he gained sentience and refused to keep fighting. I'd rather have two days of freedom than go back to what I was. Exceptions aside, 
droid will obey any command from a direct superior. It will usually be sent into battle and controlled by one individual computer or droid. In a way, its loyalty depends on the loyalty of the main processing unit. In Rebels, we see a certain tactical droid that is capable of disobeying a direct order if it thinks the order is illegitimate. Now about 99% loyalty is the best you can ever hope for when complex things like wars are happening and plans can't always be adhered to. At the tactical level, if the central control link is broken, then the droids will use their C-tier tactical knowledge to carry out predetermined objectives. This is almost certainly going to be either repeat exactly what we were doing, or human wave attacks. If they were told to capture a bunker before their commander was killed, then they will physically occupy that piece of ground and kill everything there. No context, no subtlety. Vladimir Putin's ideal soldiers. Physicality. In physical terms, the droids offer a number of advantages. They are more resistant to climate than the average human, rarely needing any more specialist equipment, and operating at higher and lower temperatures than a clone or stormtrooper could. They are immune to physical viruses and made of durasteel, which is in impact terms stronger than bone, and able to take quite a few strong hits before warping. The B1 droid, however, is also incredibly spindly and lightweight. It's 6 foot 3 and 143 pounds in weight, which means that it has very thin limbs and joints that likely cannot withstand a whole lot of pressure. In media, an average person can rip their heads clean off, or you could tip them over and sit on them because their push-up game is probably very weak. In addition, a droid seems to have around about a max battery life of 100 hours, according to RPG notes. So it's probably... A percentage of that during battle, maybe 40 hours, but they only appear to need about one hour's recharge time or sleep, which would stomp even the most drug-fueled human soldier into the dust. Mentality. At the basic level, droids have an unmatched mentality, as they don't have brains per se. They carry out precise logical tasks under direct control and generic logical tasks under severed control. They don't really understand the concept of hardship or the value of human life and their entire being is based on mathematical calculations. Their problem-solving abilities may be limited, but they are 100% committed to the task of soldiering. Of course, they are only as good as their command and control, so really it's the central processor or tactical droids mentality that matters. They maintain a methodical approach when acting locally, but it's likely so limited that their outcomes will become negative even if the gumption remains. Adaptability Locally, the B1 is incapable of what a human would consider adaptation. Even their controlling droid or CPUs have a finite amount of logical decisions to make. They cannot effectively create new ideas without crossing that dangerous line into AI. The trade-off for this is that they likely have access to thousands of times more strategies on paper than the baseline clone or human and the processing power to rapidly go through them. There's nothing new under the sun no matter what system you happen to be fighting in. Although the droid force lacks true creativity, its ability to synthesize knowledge and machine learn should not be underestimated. Of course, when acting through their local logic, this skill set will not come into play. And you can always do something ridiculous like strap bombs to Minox and let them loose on the battlefield. Compute that, you tin can. 
cost. Droids are incredibly cheap to mass produce. That's their core design feature, to be cheap and easy to produce in foundries that can be set up pretty much anywhere. This is likely as a result of the CIS being a smaller economy than the Galactic Republic and having a smaller territory. They couldn't centralize industrial capacity on one or two systems because they could lose the war incredibly quickly if they did. As they also came from the Trade Federation security forces, they're also likely cheap because the Trade Federation are a bunch of tight-fisted billionaire stereotypes. RPG sourcebooks say that a single droid costs 1,800 credits to produce. For once, and I think the first time on this show, I'm going to agree with Star Wars pricing here. Seems like a comparatively workable solution if we look at the clones costing at least a multiple of that. More on the difficult economics of a clone later. You could probably deploy about 100 drones for the price of a clone. The tanks, on the other hand, are probably suffering from Star Wars numbers. Sadly, though, there's no easy way to scale this because they're said to cost 75,000 credits. Whereas even the shittiest main battle tank of the day, the T-90 that you may know from the burning tank fields of Ukraine, costs a couple of million dollars. As CIS assault tanks are crude, it's not like it's just a big droid. The usual 100 modifier sounds a bit silly, but if we apply a 10x modifier and say these mass-produced tanks come in at 750,000 credits each. Wrapping up math talk for the droids, the battalion likely costs about 20 million credits to field, including the tactical droids, tanks and accompanying support droids. Although it's worth noting it's less than 2 million credits without the tanks. Value Droids by their definition are a singular value proposition, meaning that they do what they are programmed to do, specific limited tasks and contributed relatively little elsewhere. Sure, you can retool many droids to do many things, but you do have to effectively build a new droid. You can make a B1 droid help out on a farm or push a stroller, but you'd have to spend another 1800 credits in modification. If you expect the droids to serve any other purpose in the long term, you're out of luck. They will primarily be soldiers and carry out simpler tasks in peacetime. Static guarding, point defense mostly. Things like anti-piracy, peacekeeping and law enforcement would require them to have a relatively robust organic command structure. Economically, you also likely have to melt down the vast majority of them, because even as simple labour, their retooling would crash the economy. By the basic principles of economics, everything should cost pennies in the galactic economy. So true price competitiveness is definitely not something the economic elite want. That means you can't really use them for multiple purposes, and you can't keep them all long term. The battle droid is effectively fast fashion, a great choice if you just want something to wear while you besiege Coruscant, but not the foundation of a galactic empire. Speaking of the foundations of the galactic empire, let's take a look at the clones. The very troop that an entire war was named after. The clones of the Grand Army of the Republic were lean, mean Mandalorian machines. Using accelerated growth and industrial-scale child abuse, clones were trained for approximately a decade and emerged as fully formed effective soldiers until they died of natural causes at the ripe old age of 30. Unquestioningly loyal for the most part, and boasting a large degree of specialization and their own special forces and officer corps, 
they were a ready-made military solution. Usually commanded by a Jedi at the army level, they operated much like any organic force would, perhaps with the added bonus that command was almost always a meritocracy, something that's heavily lacking in both human armies and the later Galactic Empire's armies. Composition and Tactics A clone battalion consisted of around 660-650 clones, overseen by a clone commander. I think in this instance in the sources they forgot to add in officers when giving numbers for troops in a formation. So this is split roughly into 64 squads of 10 and their accompanying officers. There is no mention of any supporting vehicles or standard templates for battalions, including light or heavy armour. But it's likely our clones came with a lot of squad heavy weapons and something approaching uh, a genuine heavy weapons company. Maybe some EMP mortars or something special for fighting droids. They should probably bring a hell of a lot of anti-tank stuff though if their enemy routinely deploys 24 tanks at battalion level. Obedience. As we've all seen, the standard clone is child-killingly obedient. They are programmed from birth, as well as programmed via command chips to obey the orders of their superior officers. They are generally raised insofar as possible to the extent that their superior officers will actually know a lot more than them and make the right call 9 times out of 10. Even still, they are capable of debating or raising objections to plans, and in some cases, disobeying Order 66. They are incredibly unlikely to complain about anything, and treat fatigue as logistical rather than personal. Doctrinally, they seem to be incredibly flexible, probably because they were designed to be led by Jedi, an officer class that has supernatural good instincts. They will probably march straight into death if you order them to, though. And they represent an interesting conflict between creating a highly functioning army with good tactical sense that will do whatever you say. The solution to this appears to have been the command ship, which had certain orders for certain situations. Effectively, this gave the clones a form of free will up to and until certain predetermined situations occurred. It's possible then that there was an order number that allowed tactical retreats against orders and other deviances. Physicality. As all of the clones are based on the genetic template of Jango Fett, a member of a warrior culture that likely trains from a very young age, the clones were without question in the top percent of physical conditioning. While not superhuman, they most certainly had a march on baseline humans and for the sake of argument, could have totally dismembered a battle droid one-on-one. I think it makes the most sense to treat their training as the equivalent of the toughest military standards globally. I'm not going to name drop a specific military for fear of angry letters, but our clones can likely march for 50 miles in full kit and arrive ready to fight. In the same vein, it's probable that their immune systems and vital organs have been manipulated to be efficient and tough. Compared to a droid, though, they still don't stack up. They are human, after all, and although they can likely fight harder and go without sleep for longer than you or I, they still need to rest, and for longer than an hour at a time. Mentality Clone troopers have been made and raised to meet ideal specifications for being a soldier. Depending on what roles they are trained for and cross-trained for, they could be excellent mechanics as well as snipers. You know, their logisticians have the mind of a logistician. Their mechanics are like a textbook idea of a mechanic. Although they have a large degree of independence of thought, 
they're also incredibly loyal and very difficult to mismanage to the point of mutiny. Of course, this standardization also has its downsides. You are unlikely to be able to find diamonds in a rough among your normal soldiers, and that can sometimes mean the difference between victory and defeat in a tactical sense. To be fair to the clones, though, the reverse is also, t- also true, and at the strategic level, an army of solid sevens is a general's wet dream. Adaptability Clones appear to be very adaptable to individual combat situations and broader operational changes, depending on what rank they may have been made for. In a lot of the media, we see clones come up with creative solutions to problems, including trash talking a fallen Jedi to distract them, or backflipping on top of droids to blast their little metal brains apart. They understand warfare, and they understand the importance of adaptability. They aren't mindless drones, even if they respect authority a little too much. I think the Kaminoans would have instilled a lot of theory and practice in the clones based on collective military knowledge from across the galaxy. While obviously tailored to each tier of clone, and suffering from the Kaminoans' own biases, every clone would have had a fuller-than-average toolkit of tactics. That's great. However, clones are stupidly expensive. It's not entirely clear how much money it would have taken to train a regular clone, but it took place over nine years, and even at scale, that cannot stack up. In some expanded universes, we're told that the deposit for another batch of clones is in the billions. But again, that doesn't really help. What percentage is this? A 1% deposit? A 20% deposit? We can assume that each clone needs some form of food, though, and cycles through the usual amount of clothing and other goods throughout a year. Counting for the fact that all of this only ever needs to be functional, we can say that it costs about 65,000 credits just in food and clothing to produce a physically capable clone soldier. You don't have to pay them, so that's sweet, but you still have to train them, spreading it out over multiple years and might save a bit of money, but it's still going to be higher total costs than training a human volunteer. It's going to be at least 120,000 credits over the nine years. So we're going to say 185,000 odd credits, or like we said before, 100 battle droids, uh, to train a regular clone, and probably a quarter of a million plus to train an officer. That's at least 122 million credits just to train a battalion. Without the tanks, that's 60 times more expensive than a droid battalion. Over a service life, can a clone take out 60 droids before dying? Probably, but that's a question for another day. On a side note, there were much lower tier clones that could be grown a lot faster. These Sparty clones were mentally unstable and less able to apply their tactical knowledge as it was implanted rather than taught. Assuming the same overall costs and the fact that Sparty can be grown in in a year, this works out at about 11 million credits. But given their issues, is that money saved or is it money wasted? Value. Clones suffer less than droids do from the value problems. A clone can be easily retooled and retrained to fulfill a civilian purpose, especially doing mechanical or dangerous labour jobs. Unfortunately, they also age twice as fast, beginning to deteriorate and hit their senior years by around 30. Anybody in their 30s listening will realise that you might also be a clone when you wake up in the morning and all your joints creak. You also have to take on board the fact that 
they are mostly going to be unsuited for any white-collar work, and will need to be segregated from the human population because A, they'll give them the heebie-jeebies, and they will also be a constant traumatic reminder of war. Baseline humans hate clones, and they wouldn't take kindly to clones taking jobs in the economy. At the same time, you can't enfranchise them or have them be political entities in any real sense. Clones are basically Russian serfs from the 1700s with excellent combat training. They can adapt to many more situations than a droid can, but still have some frustrating limitations in the grand sense. I think they'd be perfect for reconstruction or frontier defence duties once peace has been achieved. The sad reality is that your batch of clones is going to only last until about 40 before they start breaking down physically and mentally. That could cause a lot of trouble. So it's callous to say it, but the value of a clone is entirely temporary and needs strict control. Speaking of incredibly dangerous things that need strict control, we end up at the useless sacks of meat that are me and you. Baseline humans. Well, elite shock troop baseline humans, but still, we could totally pass Stormtrooper Academy back in the day, right? Baseline humans are definitely going to have the largest variation in terms of quality between our three soldier types. Obviously a stormtrooper is trained to a high degree and has very high minimum standards, but clones and droids will meet standards so precisely that the natural variation of a human is going to seem like a lot of unnecessary sacrifice. Quick sidebar on this, stormtroopers tend to be crappy when we see them in media. Their inability to hit targets is legendary. Aside from protecting good guys, I'd say there's a couple of possible reasons for this. One, they're actually just crappy soldiers who propaganda makes them seem elite and they lack quality control. Or two, when around force-sensitive beings, their concentration is temporarily scattered if they mean them harm. I don't know what the reason is, but for the purpose of small unit tactics, we'll assume they live up to their propaganda and are the elite shock troops of the Empire, training for two years, which should theoretically make them Special Forces tier. A single stormtrooper is apparently adept at being a marine, scout, hazardous environment soldier, a paratrooper, and a public order soldier. They are also religious fanatics, with the Emperor as their god. That is a potent collection of traits. Composition and Tactics A battalion of stormtroopers is likely kitted out for whatever particular mission they're being deployed in. Under the rules of SUT, they are fighting on a generic battlefield with a broad collection of squad-level weapons, or support vehicles if that is tactically normal. A stormtrooper battalion consists of 613 troopers divided at the lowest into 64 squads of 9, practically identical to a clone battalion if officer numbers were harmonised. They will easily field multiple types of specialist weapons, including anti-armor, anti-droid, and squad-level heavy weapons. No tanks this time, unfortunately, although a battalion of stormtroopers likely had a variety of support craft in its transport ship as standard. Obedience Stormtroopers, much like the Waffen-SS, with whom they share a lot of commonalities, were heavily indoctrinated politically. They were directly loyal to the Emperor, and very much believed in the system that they were brutally protecting. Still being human though, it is possible that occasionally they would disobey orders that went too far. Luckily for Palpatine though, 
their definition of too far was rarely the murder of unarmed civilians, so they'd probably be very obedient on a battlefield. Now, doctrinal obedience might be a bit different, however. With two years of varied training under their belts, their tactical knowledge was likely very high, no matter what the situation. As shock troops, their doctrine would always be about delivering overwhelming violence at a fast pace, penetrating enemy lines and attacking their soft flanks. This would definitely be upheld at all costs, but they generally have more flexibility baked in so long as they achieved maximum results for minimum efforts. Physicality Now a droid may be made of steel, and clones may be the sires of a Mandalorian, but stormtroopers are the product of physical brutality at the level of Spetsnaz. For two years they are broken down and reshaped, causing staggeringly high attrition rates. You can push a volunteer to death, but if you physically break a clone before you deliver him, you've lost a sale. It is without question that the stormtroopers would be the most vicious of the three, being trained as shock troops and implements of repression. It is also without question that they would on average be the weakest of the three, and require the most rest between fights. You can find a battalion of stormtroopers that are all fitter than the clone, but on a bell curve the batch-grown troops have an advantage. The Imperial troops, though, likely have slightly better armour and weaponry, even accounting for Star Wars' technological stagnation. Just like the Django babies, the stormtroopers don't stack up to droids in the overall physical sense, but they are also likely to field a few exceptional individuals at squad level, something the other two likely won't be able to do. Mentality Stormtroopers are mentally brutalised over the course of 24 months to become personal implements of of repression for the Emperor. Before that, they are usually Imperial rank and file with some pre-existing degree of indoctrination. This is both a benefit and a risk because sometimes the most effective military strategy is not to be a sadistic bully. While presenting a much greater degree of variation in skill than droids or clones, the baseline is comparable, meaning that the worst graduate, who doesn't have an influential family, is probably just short of a clone in a physical sense and in general ability to fight. When you account for the fact that, again on a bell curve, a small number in each battalion will be exceptional in their field or just downright nuts, this more than negates the lower average. The quote-unquote risk of independent thought is the highest with these troops, and they would definitely disobey orders the quickest. The compensation for this frailty is that they bring all of the ingenuity and random genius of a baseline human. Over the course of multiple battles run in simulation, this would likely be a deciding factor. Adaptability The academies that churn out these Owen and Baru murdering nutbars teach them to operate in a myriad of environments, and under an advanced understanding of tactics, operation, and strategy. While repression and mass murder might be their default setting when on garrison duty, we see just how easily the 501st Legion captures the Tant of Four in A New Hope. They board a well-defended ship with minimal casualties. It is likely they are taught how to fight using sticks and stones, as well as how to survive in the wilderness, switch to ambush tactics, and generally find any way to achieve the objective. The same likely can't be said of the other two. The doctrine they follow is most definitely one of frontal assault, but they will have more creative solutions than droids or clones, 
even if they know less total tactical plans than either. Cost Costing out stormtroopers using Legends information is relatively straightforward. It looks like it's broadly similar to Earth soldiers, except maybe a bit more advanced and expensive. Officers cost half a million credits to train. And from this you can infer that a regular trooper is probably about 160,000, as general rule of thumb is that an enlisted man costs about a third as much as a junior officer to train. This includes room and board and training over the entire 24-month period. And this also gives us a much more accurate picture, because we can cost out the officers and soldiers instead of just taking one price for each. The total cost of fielding these soldiers, discounting equipment, is 18.5 million for just the officers, and 95 for the troops. It's a total price of around 113.5 million credits. Now, it's said by Tarkin that clones cost twice as much as recruits, and that's one of the reasons he wanted to stop using clones. Now, given that a stormtrooper is an elite shock troop, they probably spent about 80,000 credits training Han Solo and his Imperial Army comrades, and that's about the high end for an Earth soldier, but it's still doable, uh, and still more expensive than a squad of droids. Value The value brought by a stormtrooper is where it steals a march on the other two troop types. A stormtrooper squad is a much as much a tool of political repression as it is a shock unit that can operate under any battlefield condition. Think Royal Marines Commando meets North Korean Riot Police. And they can do a lot of other work in between. With training that teaches intermediate to advanced level base construction, political action, scouting, public order and logistics, a stormtrooper is a one-man utility knife by design, something that is a bit better than a clone and droid because it, they have mostly segregated programs. A legion of stormtroopers could likely take the capital of most planets no matter what environment or local populace did to hamper their efforts. They would be enough in their many generic variations, whereas it's likely multiple classes of droids would need to be deployed. Their loyalty and longevity is also a great advantage. They are the only troop type here that you can still use after their peak physical condition. Much like Roman soldiers, you can settle retiring stormtroopers on frontier and rest of worlds to be part of a planetary militia for the low, low price of a pension. Of course, there's also going to be an extra cost for troopers with complex issues like PTSD, but in some Legends books we see even these soldiers get a form of cushy retirement. While not intrinsically useful in a small unit tactics sandbox, the fact that the other two can't do this really really should factor into value when looking at the cost of your soldiers. So which one is better? As usual, this really depends. In a galaxy of near infinite variation, there are situations where each type of troop is an absolute no-brainer. In every scenario except pure survival though, soldiers will serve a bespoke political purpose. The droids even served a political purpose. They caused enough of a threat to the Galactic Republic that Palpatine could enact his plan to seize power. In the broader history of Star Wars, a military general has to keep the peace, engage in conquest, and defense. We talked about this in our Death Star episode. You legitimately use your security forces for many different purposes. The environment informs the political purpose, 
and therefore the need for a specific type of soldier. For example, if you needed to just protect an area of space and didn't have a huge population, droids could be a perfect fit. The complexity and risk involved in their machine brains will be relatively low, and they can operate under a small cadre of organic commanders. If you have a small population but need to carry out a whole range of military tasks, as well as create a workforce, cloning wouldn't be too bad of an idea. Effectively growing yourself Ottoman Janissaries as a type of weird soldier-slave hybrid. Although, to be honest, you could probably do something very similar with droids if you really wanted to, redirecting some of the requisition money to building more practical worker droids. If you need a force that secures an empire, though, you need organic volunteers. No doubt about it. All three come with their own potential problems, however. Droids can revolt, be hacked, or suffer hardware faults. Clones will age rapidly, can revolt, and are extremely expensive. Humans are less standardized, can revolt, and require a functioning society to operate to maximum effect. Now it's hard to look past droids in simple terms of warfighting, but when the inevitable politics are thrown in, they become much less attractive. To achieve your long-term goals, stormtroopers and their like are more sustainable than either clones or droids and more useful. In terms of a discrete score, I think you'd have to rank uh, stormtroopers at an 8 out of 10, droids out of 7, and clones at a 6. But which formation would you choose to do your galactic bidding? You can let us know on Twitter at the underscore GDBS. And please feel free to like and share the podcast among your friends. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks, focusing on weird aspects of the Marvel Cinematic and DC Universe. In the meantime, remember to keep your hobbies fun and dumb, because that's what they're there for. (laughs) 